From Hyde Park United Methodist Church in Tampa, Florida, this is the Bible Project 2020, a journey to reading the Bible without fear or frustration. I'm Monica Largis, your host today. On this week's episode, Matt Hotho and Nikki Taylor interview Nikki's former teacher. Dr. Trafton has retired from teaching at Western Kentucky University. He has United Methodist roots, but now lives and attends a church close to home in Nashville, Tennessee. He has many scholarly writings, including a commentary on the book of Revelation. In this episode, they talk about Revelation in light of the prophets from the Hebrew Bible, as well as what may have prompted John to write Revelation. Personally, the book of Revelation is the book I would have approached with fear and frustration. So they lay out some approaches for a modern reader that I find very helpful. Now, on to the episode. We start out in the book of Revelation, in Revelation 1-3, where John says, favored is the one who reads this prophecy out loud. So as we know, there are tons of prophets in the Old Testament. As, as we've read through the entire Bible in this Bible project, how can we take that experience as we're going into Revelation? I was thinking that's a great lead question because all of your listeners to this podcast are now experts. They've read right. Old Testament prophets. Uh, and in doing so, um, that helps them in, in readers in two ways. One is, if you've read the Old Testament prophets, you've been introduced to the concept of prophecy. And that is mm-hmm. that prophecy is not contrary to what our culture likes to think, simply about predicting the future. Prophecy is about speaking the word of God. That's the way the prophets understood themselves. God has spoken. Who can but prophesy, says Amos. So that's what prophets do. And you also know, and your readers, your listeners know, that um, the prophets spoke to very specific circumstances. When you read Jeremiah and Isaiah, you really get all of that with all the narratives of kings and, and temple leaders and everything else. They, they, the prophets spoke to very specific circumstances and believed they were given a word from God to do so. Uh, that's what John is doing. Uh, he lays out his book as a prophecy. He understands, as he says at the beginning of his book, that he has received a revelation from, uh, from God through Jesus and give to the seven churches of Asia Minor. So uh, your listeners already know what it's like to read a prophet. You've got to understand things about what their context is, their historical, social, economic context. Uh, I think we need to, at the outset, talk about kind of these uh these these four big questions you really want to talk about with any book, right? What's the historical context? Who wrote it? When did they write it? And what issues? This I I I this fourth question I kind of phrase different ways, but I like to think of it as what issues catalyzed the writing of the document? Or as as Nikki knows, my statement would always be what are the life setting and purposes of the book? Yeah. Mm. What is it that called forth the writing? But same same point. Um and uh, uh the the to answer the questions, um, the first question is really about the least significant, it seems to me. Who wrote it? Uh, traditionally, Christians from the very beginning have said it was John the Apostle. And so we have mm-hmm. the New Testament, five books by John the Apostle, the son of Zebedee, uh, uh, the gospel, fourth gospel, three letters of John, and Revelation of John. Ironically, the only book of those five which names John as the writer is this one. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And he never pulls rank. He doesn't say, John, the brother of James, John, the son, John, the follower of Jesus. There is absolutely nothing in this book 
uh, to distinguish him as the disciple of Jesus. I, I, I do not doubt that the churches knew who he was, and he may well have been a leader, and he could have been John, the brother of Jesus, uh, brother of James. But um, he bases the authority for his book on the revelation that God gives him, not on who he was and his connection with Jesus. Is. I think we can confidently say, who wrote the book of Revelation? John. How do we know that? Because he tells us so. Whether we can go any further with that in identifying him as the fourth gospel writer, uh, I don't see that in the slightest, nor, again, do I see it as relevant. He gets his, mm-hmm. his information from Jesus, not from being an eyewitness. Um, second question, when? Um, this is one that has been debated by scholars. There are some who see it in the 60s uh, because of supposed connections with Nero. Um, I go with the, those who see it probably in the time of Domitian, which is uh, the 90s. Um, not the least uh, reason for which is that there was a great earthquake in 60 AD um, uh, that devastated Laodicea. Uh, it was written during the time of Nero, who dies in 68. Uh, it was written within a few years of that earthquake, and yet Laodicea is the church that Jesus, through John, says, you all, I think you're rich. You know, and they're the ones that are lukewarm, and it just doesn't mesh well with me. But in any event, um, there's a lot of stuff in here that could connect with the mission um, in terms of uh, his, his uh, ego, uh, his uh, printing of coins, calling himself Lord and God, uh, his building of a temple uh, that has been excavated in, in Ephesus um, to himself and his father, uh, Vespasian, and his brother Titus, um, who were emperors before him, uh, to, and the temple was built to uh, to worship them. Uh, and so there's a lot to connect this with the time of Domitian. There's an extent to which, again, I don't see it as being all that significant, um, pinning it down that way. Much more significant is the next questions, I guess, uh, a question about what catalyzes or what, what the situation is. Um, and I think that's the, the, the real one here. Uh, I think Domitian gives us a good backdrop. So you got a third and fourth question. I'm combining them into two. But um, yeah. What catalyzes? What is it that brings forth? Well, to whom is he writing? Maybe that was a question. He says he's writing to the seven churches in the province of Asia. He names them. Um, I, no reason to do anything other than take matters word, which is what I, I think is the right way to, to, to study the Bible, see what the writers say about themselves. Um, but that's where things get fun. Uh, and that is when you read the book, but especially the seven the letters to the seven churches in chapters two and three, you get issues that are being dealt with. And I, I look at them as four. Uh, one of them is, um, and I think this is found elsewhere in the book, the, the, the fact of emperor worship um, and what that would mean. Secondly, is that um, churches are losing their first love or going lukewarm or getting dead, as he images that he gives to three of them. Uh, third, <laughs> There is the issue of assimilation, and I want to expand upon that one to the culture. And then fourth, there's some, there's at least one woman who terms herself a prophet, but I didn't say prophetess, Nikki. Okay, because oh no, prophet, prophet. She terms herself a prophet, and and John calls her Jezebel, That's a, you know, mm-hmm. giving a an Old Testament image of a, of a nasty lady uh, in the Old Testament who opposed God. Um, who knows what this person's name was? Uh, and so, but in addition to that, we have Nicolaitans, whoever they were, were that are mentioned in a couple of the letters. You've you've got uh, leadership in the church 
that is accepted leadership. The, the Church of Thyatira tolerates Jezebel. They accept her as a prophet. You've got leadership in the church that John believes is going astray. Uh, you've got um, Christians on their own going astray. You've got the threat of emperorship, this, this deal about assimilation. So let me, I mean, just those last two in particular, all four of those I think are important. But uh, with the last two, emperor worship is not, uh, the emperors wanted themselves to be worshipped as God. Most of them did. Uh, Domitian certainly did. And, but it's not something that they worried about on a personal daily basis. Uh, they weren't going to get voted in. They weren't coming up for re-election. Uh, they're God, and they want everybody to know it. Uh, so um, later, you could have uh, major persecutions in early Christianity in the second, third uh, centuries uh, that were promoted by the emperor, etc. There's no evidence in this time that major persecutions of Christianity were taking place. Some people argue that, that um, Revelation is a book written to persecuted Christians. Uh, I don't see that at all. But the way emperor worship uh, works is this way. Um, they wanted everybody to believe they were in charge. They were God. Um, they weren't asking for anybody's votes. They just assumed everybody would. For the local level, uh, the question is, what did people think? And some people thought, well, you know, who cares about emperor worship? Uh, but some cities and some areas really wanted to promote it. Now we're talking about local officials, okay, as opposed to the emperor himself. The province of Asia had three temples built to worship the emperor. Pergamum was the first one, Smyrna was the second one, and then Domitian built his uh, in, in the 90s. No other Roman province had more than one. So there's something going on in the province of Asia where the locals want this kind of a thing. That brings status to the city, status to the province, those seven churches in the province of Asia, to have three temples to worship the emperor. So there's something going on there with local authorities. So where it meets the, the ground for the regular Christians in that province is there's going to be this temple. You are expected to go and to um, worship the emperor, give some incense or whatever it is. Uh, you do so because, well, you know, there's a lot of gods and you do that with a lot of different temples. And I mean, it's no big deal. You know, he's not asking for your vote. You just go and do it. Uh, it's your civic duty. It's your pledging mm -hmm. to the emperor. Um, <clears throat> But there could be Christians who would say, you know, I don't, I don't know whether we should be doing that. Uh, isn't, aren't we supposed to be obeying God? And so at that stage, you could have people, including church leaders, uh, saying, no, it's just, it's just, you know, part of being a good citizen of Ephesus or Smyrna or Thyatira or whatever it might be. So it, the, you are at that stage. The question is, one, not so much of worshiping a particular human being and thinking he's great. But uh, doing your duty and being pressured, and certainly it could be pressured in chapter 13 in the case that there was pressure, uh, buying and selling sort of thing. You could have a lot of pressure to uh, assimilate to the culture, to do the things that you're supposed to do in terms of the emperor, lest there be consequences. I don't think at this time the consequences were being thrown to the lions or anything else. Nothing, no indication that the mission did that. I think it's really helpful to... Uh to sort of see this sort of like second generation or third generation of Christianity that's clearly growing and people who have these other allegiances to trade guilds and these other things that take priority in their lives are now having to 
uh, weigh those against their Christian convictions, the Lordship of Christ, mm-hmm. you know, the practices of the church. And what it sounds like the issue at stake here in Revelation is, is how are these uh, communities weighing all those different things together? And what are their leaders saying to them, good, bad, or indifferent? And it seems like John has issues with certainly some leaders who are saying things like, no, they're all on the same level, um, that would lead one to uh, think their Christianity is just another option among many other guilds to which they belong. Yeah, I mean, that, that's precisely it. It's the growing pains. Um, uh, it's the growing pains and how serious, what does this mean as a Christian? How do you live out your Christian life? In this context, mm-hmm. uh, which which of course is exceedingly applicable over the 21st century, uh, whatever was going on specifically in these churches, uh, we may not have the um, food sacrifice to idols anymore, but exceedingly applicable in the 21st century of how do we live uh, in a world which gives us in, in 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 church situations which give us a lot of different cultural narratives and cultural pressures, social media. Uh, increases all the pressure. How do we live in that world? What is what was faithfulness to Jesus all about? So we've um, done a lot of setting up sort of the the context and the purpose and the background information. Um, so when we put this all together, how should we as modern readers approach Revelation? Two things to say right off the bat, both of which are very important. One. <clears throat> Don't expect to understand all of it. Okay. And I'm a New Testament scholar. I've spent my entire life studying the New Testament. I've spent my entire life, uh, a lot of my life, studying the book of Revelation. I love that book. Uh, I've written a commentary on it. I don't understand all of it. Why? Because we aren't first century Christians living in those seven churches. There are things that are said that we will never pick up. uh, Allusions that he makes that we will never understand. So we don't need to kick ourselves by saying, uh, we, we, I don't get this. I don't get this. And that means as we read the book, if we get something, we come to something like the, to the, the conqueror is going to receive a white stone. What's a white stone? What, what, what good is a white stone? And then you turn to commentaries and we see there have been different proposals as to what the white stone is. When we go through the 50, oh, which one is it? Who cares? They understood it. They knew it was good. Mm-hmm. That's why it's a, it's a reward. We're not going to catch that. So, so in that sense, we don't need to stop every time we don't understand a detail and throw up our hands and say, I'll never understand this book, or try to figure out what it is. A lot of people do that with Revelation. Uh, we are not those, we're not members of the seven churches. There's much that we will miss. That's okay. Second thing is, forget, you when you read the book of Revelation, if you can sit down and read it, which, which your listeners are going to do, hopefully after they hear this podcast, maybe before, forget everything you've ever heard about Revelation. Sorry, but also yeah. I would say the same, same thing to my students. I say the same thing. You know, I give you this lecture on Revelation or a course, whatever. But once you sit down with it, forget everything, forget everything you've heard. What I've heard all through my teaching career over and over again, about a lot of New Testament, especially about Revelation. Isn't this passage supposed to be about, isn't this supposed to be about, isn't this supposed to be about, Nikki, you can get this if you haven't already gotten it as a pastor. You know, people say to you, <clears throat> Is it, oh, yeah. Isn't this supposed to be about? Isn't this supposed to be about? Supposed to be, who says it's supposed to be? 
Yeah. It's what people have heard from people they trust. And I, I never want to say don't trust people you've heard, but set aside those things. There are so many preconceived notions about revelation. It's supposed to be about Russia and China and Iraq's in there somewhere and Afghanistan. And um, it's supposed to be, it's supposed to be, forget all of that. Um, everything that's supposed to be about. And also, forget everything you know about Christianity. My point here is the one we've been talking about, and that is John's a Christian, and he shares a lot. He shares basic beliefs with those early Christian writers, but he's not a Methodist, uh, and he's not a Catholic, and he's not a Baptist. Um, and um, we hope that, you know, we all are biblical in, in our approaches, but we, we express things, you know, in a different way that it was done then. And so don't go and say, oh, I see this. Okay, I can relate to that. That's the doctrine that I was taught in Confirmation. Don't do that. Let the book speak to you. Uh, what do you do if you, what, how do you, as a modern reader, approach Revelation? Sit down with a blank slate and say, I got this book. I'm not going to understand it all. Uh, I'm going to forget anything that anybody's told me about. I'm going to be a sponge. I'm going to let John lead me through this book. I'm going to open my imagination. Imagination? I'm an adult. Adult don't use imagination. That's just for children. No. Open your up your imagination. Let the world build. Let the characters build. Mm -hmm. Let the images build. And see where the text takes you. When you get to uh, the slain lambs, oh, 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 that's Jesus, that's Jesus. I know that. And Jesus died on the cross, and he was the second person of the Trinity. Just, just, just let it unfold. It's going to tell you that by his blood, he purchases people. But listen to what it says. By his blood, he purchases mm. people, makes them to be a kingdom priest, purchases people from every tribe and language and nation. That might be, not be the way that you actually express it if you're talking to somebody else about Jesus. Let, and let the book unfold. Let the questions in it arise. As you have questions, as, as John raises questions, you might be, oh, I'm singing the same thing. Well, John's going to answer it. And let yourself get into the world, get caught up into the world of Revelation. I would add two things here uh, in terms of other don'ts. Um, one is don't think that everything is allegorical unless John gives you that indication. The other thing, which is a very important, I want to give an image on this one. Don't assume that it's chronological. I get mm. questions. You got the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bolts. Some of you, that's all they know about Revelation. Do you think there are 21 different events or are some of the events, do some of the events uh, do the same thing? Are they really seven different events? And the third seal, or I get people saying, the third seal has been broken, but I haven't seen the fourth either. Of course, now with COVID, maybe we have, okay, from, from their perspective. But, but or the fifth, fifth trumpet is coming. Up. And don't say, let me, so let, the way you tell a story doesn't have to be chronological. And let me give a visual image to this. Somebody's got a program for me, and I click my mouse, and I see... I, a rectangle. Oh, that's cool. That's a rectangle. That's nice. Then I click it again, and the rectangle is now uh, a, a, a door. And there's a house around it. Just by clicking a mouse, this house has been filled in around this rectangle. Oh, wow. That's neat. No windows in it. Then I click it again. Suddenly windows appear, and, and the, the facade appears. Oh, this is stone. Okay, I can see that. Then I click it again, and I've got shrubbery out front and trees all around, 
that original rectangle's there, that original door, and it just keeps uh, keeps growing. And then I, I click it again, and now I've got mountains behind it, and, and, and the sun over here. And, and and the point is, maybe maybe that's the world in which somebody did them, but I have to click it several times to see the whole picture. Mm-hmm. And I think much of what goes on in Revelation is like this. John will give a snapshot of something. It's not the whole picture. You're going to come back to it later, and you're going to add something to that picture. And you layer that to the picture, not because it happened later in time, but because that's the way the story world is being built. And so mm-hmm. don't assume that you're working from that what uh, takes place in chapter 21 is necessarily the end of time in chapter four, the beginning, anything like that. Uh, let the story build itself to you as it does. That's what I would say to modern readers. Sit down with it as a whole by yourself and just soak it up. Um, what would an edifying encounter look like with Revelation? And what I mean by that is like, you know, reading it closely, but not getting caught in all the don'ts. Uh, reading it closely, but don't bring too many assumptions to it. Yeah. Read it closely, but don't get caught up in the imagery too much. Yeah. You know, like, so what, where's the balance there for the, for the reader that wants to have success reading Revelation, who may haven't had that before? The balance I, I think I was, was trying to get at it is simply, if you put these assumptions aside, if you can do that and open up your imagination and just follow the book as it goes, uh, and try to see where the where John is leading us. That's what the balance is all about. Uh, and you know, get wrapped up in the story world and see where you go. The edifying part um, comes with essentially what is in the book. I, w- I would say that approach should be used for anything. I love Dickens novels, um, and so uh, and I'm rereading them now for the second time, third on some of them. Um, and I'll spend the rest of my life rereading all, read all of Dickens' novels, and I read it again. And the the, the fun part, I, I just sit down and I can put the world aside and get caught up in the world of of Oliver David Copperfield, or or whatever, and just just be caught up in that. I say that for for sort of any book or any communication. If I'm going to talk to the two of you. I'm going to let you talk, and I'm going to get, listen to you, and I'm going to get caught up in what you say. So that's a basic me, sort of principle of communication for me, and I think it applies to the Bible. The edifying part comes with the content. And I think an edifying part, uh, the edifying uh, ex- experience, if we will, or encounter with Revelation will be one in which uh, you, as you're caught up in all of this, uh, the, once you get past that bizarre sequence of John hearing somebody talking to him and turning around and seeing this crazy looking figure uh, with hair white like wool and, and uh, feet like burnished bronze and all of that and just and, and dictating things to churches and talking about prophets and Jezebel and lukewarm and all these kinds of things. <clears throat> then you get to this first in experience experience to say, I hope it gets better. <laughs> or you say, okay, I can, I can understand this. <clears throat> and what you get is Jesus. Revelation begins with Jesus, and it's an amazing picture of Jesus, the dead lamb who was slain, who's purchased people who, from every tribe, and who is worthy to be worshipped as God, and worshipped as God 
beside God with the exact same words by everything in creation, including all the angels. And then you say, wow. Mm -hmm. And that's the lens through mm -hmm. which you view the book. Not the lens of which of these things are about China and the coronavirus. Mm -hmm. It's the lens mm -hmm. of, wow, what an amazing picture I've just seen about Jesus. And of course, the book's going to honor that reading because that's what the whole book is about. Wow. Let's use our imaginations while we read the words of John. What a helpful way of thinking about a book so often shrouded in mystery. Thank you, Dr. Trafton, for joining us today. If you want to hear more from our conversation, be sure to join our Bible Project 2020 group on Facebook. We have a bonus episode coming out this week detailing some more things from Revelation. Also, look for our farewell episode on Thursday. Nikki, Matt, and I came together one last time to do a little year in review on this project. We're still worshiping online Sundays at 9.30 and 11 a.m. You can join us on Facebook or at hydeparkumc.org live. Thank you, Matt Hotho and Nikki Taylor. I was your editor. I'm Monica Largesse. See you on Thursday.